So this episode really has to begin with a cup of coffee. I totally agree. Most things have to begin with a cup of coffee. (laughs) I'm George Lavender of Making Contact. And I'm Mallory Smith of Green Grid Radio. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about coffee. Coffee is actually the second most traded global commodity after oil. Do you want to guess how many cups of coffee are consumed around the world every day? How many? Two billion cups. Two billion? Two billion. But the environmental and social justice impact on producing countries is devastating. We're going to begin at the beginning with the coffee farmers. Over 500,000 Colombian families depend on coffee farming to survive. But five decades of war forced millions of Colombians to flee their land and abandon their crops. In recent years, the violence has decreased and many farmers have returned to their land. But getting back to farming hasn't been easy. Jennifer Dunn reports on how Colombian small-scale coffee farmers are struggling to protect their crops and their way of life. Jairo Martinez has been farming coffee the same way his family has for generations, in the Sierra Nevada mountains of Colombia's northeastern coast. These are the highest coastal mountains in the world. From Jairo's small plot of land, we have a sweeping view over dense foliage to the Caribbean Ocean 2,000 meters below. Jairo doesn't use machinery or pesticides. He harvests, cleans, and sorts the beans by hand. When he goes to market, he borrows his neighbor's mule for the five-hour trek down the mountain. It's a whole way of life. One gets used to the land. Even after everything one has been through, this is what one loves. But it's hard starting over after losing everything you had. Jairo is struggling to keep his farm going. He and his family were forced to flee escalating violence in 1996. Paramilitaries destroyed village property and executed locals they accused of being guerrilla sympathizers. As soon as the region settled, Jairo returned to withered crops, washed out roads, and plummeting coffee prices. My plan is to make my farm productive again and build something to leave my family. The annual cost to sustain a finca doesn't give you the harvest to sustain you throughout the year. I haven't been able to recover what I lost. Coffee prices fell from $3 a pound in 2011 to $1 a pound in 2013. With the cost of production averaging about $1.50 a pound, growers struggled to cover costs. The government offered some subsidies, but not enough to cover production losses. Jairo and his sisters lead me around their property, explaining the traditional process they use for preparing their coffee beans. We put the berries through this hand grinder to remove the pulp. The beans ferment in this basin of spring water. We spread them out on the cement slab to dry them in the sun. He sifts out a handful of pulpy white berries. They're flesh pocked with irregular brown spots. There's a broca right here. She's right here. This parasite is terrible. It eats up our profits. Civil war, la broca, and low prices aren't the only challenges to hit Colombian coffee farmers in recent years. In 2011, torrential rains destroyed billions of dollars worth of crops. After the rains eased, la roya, an aggressive coffee fungus, flourished, decimating remaining plants. 
Colombian farmers reeled from these setbacks just as Brazil and Vietnam stepped up production, flooding international markets with lower-quality, lower-cost beans. Colombia's National Coffee Federation, which exports fair trade coffee under the Juan Valdez label, is supposed to support farmers through these kinds of adverse conditions and market fluctuations. But Haido can't afford the basic investments required to join the federation, like storage silos and the organic certification process. He is buried in debt, still struggling to regain what was destroyed in the conflict. Paramilitaries burned his house to the ground. He and his sister still live under a tarp shelter. They don't have electricity or running water. It's even difficult to regain our confidence because of what we suffered. We don't have a good filtration system. They destroyed everything, like our house. I just had to put up this shelter. We are just trying to progress year by year. With these bad harvest and coffee prices, we can't regain what we lost. This is the reality with coffee now. We can't afford to hire any help. I have to do everything myself. It's hard to believe Jairo isn't eligible to sell his coffee under the Fair Trade Juan Valdez label. The fictional Juan Valdez was a 1960s advertising creation intended to connect consumers to the origin and quality of their coffee beans. He could have been designed in Jairo's image. With his work ethic, passion for his crop, remote mountain farm, and kind, sun-wrinkled face, Jairo is exactly the kind of humble farmer millions of U.S. consumers believe they are supporting when they line up to buy quality fair trade coffee each morning. It would be nice to have another way to sell our product, like in a farmer's market or exchange, because as it is now, we can only sell to middlemen who take double of what we earn. With this system, we lose more than we invest. But other coffee farmers I spoke with, who are members of Colombia's National Coffee Federation, say the Federation hasn't provided enough support to pull them through the volatile prices and tough conditions of these past few years. After visiting coffee plantations above the town of Minca, I shared a ride down the mountain with Federation member Mariana Cruz. She runs a farm that has been in her family for three generations. It's a tradition. The majority of people cultivate yuca, mice, plantain, more profitable crops, until coffee prices rise again and one can say it's worth it. But for now, this is what we have to do. She and thousands of other farmers are diversifying, hoping that growing plantain, yuca, and potato will help make up for their losses with coffee. In early 2014, coffee prices began rising again, but farmers can't rush back to coffee. New plants take four years to mature and begin producing berries. So recent crop shifts mean a long-term drop in Colombia's overall coffee production. <laughs> 57-year-old Susana Angarita, who also operates her family's farm in the Minca region, agrees that farmers are reluctant to shift their focus from coffee. I spoke with her at a coffee shop on a busy corner in the nearby city of Santa Marta. El turismo en el eje cafetero ha sacado muchas haciendas Many haciendas have turned to tourism because it's the boom, at the same time conserving the tradition of coffee. And I've learned that the business of coffee is to process it and sell it, but not just sell it, but sell it by the cup. We have great expectations in that aspect. Susana isn't alone. 
A number of coffee fincas throughout Colombia have rebranded themselves as tourist destinations and are enjoying steady business in the nation's growing tourism market. But Susana knows this isn't an option for most. Not every person can do that. It's not what we do. We know farming, not how to make a bed. The older generations will not stop farming coffee. Unfortunately, we'll see the next generations walk away from the industry. This will hit the Federation very hard. That has been the case for Jairo. His dream is to leave his farm to his children, but they've already made lives in a nearby city. They are haunted by the violence that drove them from their mountain home and have no plans of returning to the family business. But for Jairo and hundreds of thousands of Colombians who were raised growing coffee, it's difficult to imagine another life. Jairo says the struggles these families face now will have far-reaching implications for the nation. Back in the U.S., the price for a cup or pound of coffee remains steady. U.S. consumers continue seeking out Colombian coffee, most unaware of how perilous the futures of Colombia's smallest growers are. Haido may never be able to bring his farm out of debt and back to full productivity. Colombia will lose part of its artisanal coffee culture with Haido's generation. For Making Contact, I'm Jennifer Dunn in Santa Marta, Colombia. You're listening to a joint production between Making Contact and Green Grid Radio. If people want to find out more about Green Grid Radio, where do they go? You can visit our website at www.greengridradio.org to see all of our past episodes. And I highly recommend the meat episode. You just have to check it out. For more about Making Contact, go to radioproject.org. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. For our next coffee story, Mallory's been looking into fair trade. A fairly simple idea, you might think. Well, not quite. The fair trade movement was born out of the desire for an alternative way to get coffee from farm to cup, one that could improve the lives of the people who grow our coffee. But as Mallory found out, in 2012, the fair trade movement suffered an ugly breakup that resulted in two different organizations, both claiming the fair trade label. So we're here in the grocery store right now. I'm with my friend Eric, who is a total coffee geek. He just knows a lot about coffee quality. I do. So we're walking through the coffee aisle. Right, and I mean, so I'm lost. There's just so many different... There's a lot of options. options This one says Fair Trade Certified. Oh, that's a different Fair Trade label, though. Yes. Is that the same thing? I don't know. That's really unclear. Is this how long it takes you to uh, pick coffee normally? Normally, I just buy the same coffee every time. They're different from each other, too. Yes. Is that one the same as the fair trade from Sweden? No, that one is different. In the past, if you saw a fair trade label, you could assume a few things. First, you'd know the grower was earning a certain minimum price per pound of coffee. And second, the farmer's community was earning a premium that would go toward education, infrastructure development, technology, things like that. And finally, and this is the important part, you'd know the coffee was grown by a small farmer. But that changed a couple of years ago. It was a huge controversy. It's kind of like a divorce, a a bitter divorce. That's Jeff Goldman, the executive director of Fair Trade Resource Network. Fair Trade was a unified international group with a common set of goals until 2012. 
Then, in a surprise move, an American faction split from the international fair trade community to form Fair Trade USA. The U.S. group split from the international fair trade community in part because of different beliefs about how to increase the impact of fair trade and who should benefit. Fair Trade USA wanted to have that freedom to, to be independent and to, you know, they call it innovate, and other people who disagree with them call it um, kind of to disrespect the rest of the movement and do what they want to do despite people's opinions about what fair trade is. Okay, Mallory, explain this to me. Is there an agreed definition of fair trade? So there's no international definition of fair trade. There's just a disagreement about what it should mean between these two groups. And what was this disagreement about? So it pretty much boils down to a disagreement between the two factions about who gets to benefit from fair trade. There are basically two ways of producing coffee. There are small-scale farmers and there are big plantations. Fair Trade USA thinks that the benefits of fair trade shouldn't be limited to small farmers and co-ops. It should be extended to hired workers on plantations, even if those plantations are owned by multinationals. So one of the original purposes of the fair trade movement was to protect small-scale farmers who have a hard time making a living because of the supply and demand economics of the coffee trade. And what are the economics of the coffee trade? Because big plantations have so much more land and so much more technology and more people working on the farm, they're able to produce a lot more coffee than small-scale farmers can. And this floods the market with coffee and drives the prices way down. And small-scale farmers just can't make enough coffee to make a living when the prices are that low. So many of them go hungry in Latin America for certain months of the year that they even have a name for it in Spanish. They call it Los Meses Flacos, which means the lean months. Okay, I've got this. So basically, Fairtrade USA wanted to certify some of those plantations, but Fairtrade International, the side Jeff Goldman's on, thought that was a step too far. And a lot of critics of the separation say that Fairtrade USA did it kind of secretly and did it on their own and didn't consult many stakeholders at all, especially the main beneficiaries who would be farmers. Jeff feels like Fairtrade USA's decision to certify plantations could undermine the very point of Fairtrade, which is to help small farmers get out of the cycle of poverty they've been stuck in for decades. He says the farmers are worried about the same thing. Most of the Fairtrade producer groups spoke up against the split, and one of them, uh, the best organized, is the one in Latin America called the CLAC. Back in September 2011, the Latin American and Caribbean Network of Small Fair Trade Producers released an official statement opposing Fair Trade USA's initiative. The board president, Merling Preza Ramos, wrote, quote, We as CLAC join the regret caused by the departure of Fair Trade USA, and we express the fact that we cannot share its new vision of expansion since it threatens the empowerment, development, and self-management of small organized producers. And, um, really urging Fair Trade USA not to do it, to come back to the international system. Um, and they were so hurt you know, by this split and by how it threatened, what they see it threatened small producer fair trade, that they went to great expense to not only continue to support Fair Trade International and to not support Fair Trade USA, but to form their own new certification system called the Small Producer Symbol. To get to the other side of this big split, I visited a Los Angeles roastery. So this machine is very unique. It ties in with our sustainability um, philosophy in that traditional machines will have to use larger burners to roast this amount of coffee. 
That's Jeff Cheen of Groundwork Coffee in Los Angeles. He showed me around the Groundwork Roastery in North Hollywood. Clear plastic containers lined the walls from floor to ceiling filled with beans that Jeff can identify and distinguish at a glance from their slight differences in shape, size, and colors. And right in front of me was the actual roasting machine. Get that soot going on there, you can see, you can see the orange glow. It looks like the back of the Batmobile. It's big and loud. The guy working on it pours the green coffee beans in one end and brown roasted beans spill out the other end. But it's not a simple process. In, a, in artisanship, though, there's art. That's why it's called artisanship. And what the art is, is finding the coffee and um, figuring out how best to express the qualities that you fell in love with about it. Like the other Jeff, this Jeff, Jeff Cheen, is a big believer in fair trade. Fair trade is not so much a priority as being fair. My hot button really is sustainability and taking being good stewards of the land. And I think being good stewards of the land, you know, part and parcel of that is being good to your people and honest with your in your in your business relations. But when it comes to the split between the US fair trade group and the rest of the world, Jeff gave me a slightly different explanation of why it happened. I believe why there was a split between the European and the American or United States uh, fair trade is because the market was outgrowing the fair trade concepts, the way that they were being applied. All that means is that when the dust settled, his company came down on the side of the Americans. The argument that Jeff Cheen makes is that many of the plantation owners are already improving the lives of their workers by building schools, houses, providing medical care. So why shouldn't they also be able to get fair trade accreditation? I think inclusiveness is a good thing. So if they're big and they want to be included, they should be included. If they want to meet the standards that are being set, you know, whether it's small or big or anything, it should be inclusive. Okay. And so why do you think Fairtrade International didn't want to expand in the way that Fairtrade USA has and become more inclusive? I mean, sometimes for people, change is hard, right? And uh, it's, why, why fix the machine if it's not broken? So that's why we now have not one, but two Fairtrade labels. But there's a bigger issue that we haven't talked about yet. Even though it would be nice to extend the benefits of fair trade to plantation workers, the majority of coffee produced by small-scale fair trade farmers isn't even sold as fair trade coffee. Wait, so people are buying coffee that isn't listed as fair trade that might have been produced by a fair trade farmer? How is that possible? So it all goes back to the economics of it. Demand for fair trade coffee in the U.S. has grown a lot recently, but it's still only 2% of the U.S. coffee market. So it's not nearly enough to absorb all the coffee being produced by small farmers under fair trade terms. Only one third of the coffee produced by small farmers is bought and sold at the fair trade price. So that means that two thirds of the coffee being produced by fair trade farmers is sold at the conventional price. There's simply not enough demand yet for fair trade, so fair trade can't fully meet the needs of the small producers who are certified. Fair trade demand is well short of supply, and it's uh, pretty well documented that only about one third of the coffee that is produced under fair trade terms is sold under fair trade terms because demand's not high enough. The international fair trade community says maybe one day certifying big plantations will be a good idea, but right now it's too soon. If we expand the fair trade market to include plantations now, then small farmers will be outcompeted in the one niche carved out to keep them afloat. Fair trade is one really positive alternative that brings some additional benefits. And in the short term, if we grow the demand and awareness for fair trade goods, that one third of, of 
coffee that's sold under fair trade terms could grow to two-thirds, maybe 90%, maybe 100%. And then it'd be great to talk about how to expand fair trade to more producer groups. That report was from Mallory Smith of Green Grid Radio. Mallory, are you a regular coffee drinker? Oh, yeah. I'm like a three to five cups a day kind of person. Big question. French press versus pour over. Which side of that debate do you come down on? I tend to use a pour over, but not because I necessarily like it better. I'd say I like both. It's just easier, I believe. Well, in our final story, we're going to hear about a more recent coffee trend, single cup brewing. It's wildly popular partly because it's marketed as being so easy. Simply pop the pod in the machine, and moments later, you have a cup of coffee. But it's what happens to that little pod after you've done making coffee that's causing concern. Making Contact producer Laura Flynn has been tracking down what happens to that pod next. If you're one of the 15% of Americans who owns a single cup coffee brewing machine, chances are you'll recognize this sound. It's very easy uh, to utilize single cup dispensing. It's quickly done once it's warmed up. John Hazen places a small plastic cup with an aluminum top and coffee grounds inside into the top of the machine. Marketed for their convenience, in 2014, about 9.8 billion K-cup packs were sold according to Keurig Green Mountain, the company that makes them. But with that success has come another problem. What to do with those little plastic cups when they're finished? So I'm presuming that the cup itself would be suitable for going into recycling, as well as the top. It appears that the top is is totally aluminum foil. And then, of course, the coffee grounds themselves could go into the organic recycling. Would you go through that trouble? I would. Others, including family members who will not be named, would not uh, necessarily go through that. Keurig is not the only company to make single-cup brewing pods. Competitors like Nespresso have their own version. But as Keurig dominates the market, it has also been subject to growing criticism. Jesus, what the? What is that thing? I think it's one of those coffee things. In this apocalyptic video, terrified people flee alien spaceships shooting K-cups. The mock horror video was made by Canadian-based production company Egg Studios in association with Social Bean, a company also specializing in single-cup brewing minus the pod. The video claims that in 2014, there were enough discarded K-cups to circle the earth ten and a half times. Keurig says their latest brewer uses pods made from number five plastic, which is accepted by the majority of recyclers in the U.S. and Canada. But the older and more popular K-cups are made from number seven plastic. Most recyclers don't take number seven plastic. And that's partly where the problem starts. To find out what impact John Hazen's K-cups and the billions like it are having, I went to my local waste processing plant. It's like Disneyland for trash. That's Rebecca Jewell. She's a recycling program manager for the Davis Street Transfer Station. It's a facility that processes about 3,500 tons of trash per day for most of Alameda County, California. That's for about 850,000 households plus businesses. So we have a garbage pit that is 15 feet deep. And when you would be standing on it, 
you would be looking into essentially something the size of a Olympic swimming pool, maybe three times over, filled with trash. And that's just the trash. Jules says the coffee pods will show up in all three of their waste streams, organic materials, recycling, and trash. And so we went looking for some. This is an organics building, and in this case, this is the truck that's collecting your organic spin. So what's in your organic spin is your leaves and grass and branches, your food and your food sold papers. Surprisingly, it doesn't really stink. If you wanted to open up your pod and put all your coffee grounds separate, then that would be, it would land here and it would go into the compost. And in about three months, it would turn into soil. All right, so we are going to go into another MRF here. A MRF. This is a material recovery facility, an MRF or a MRF. And um, we are sorting through household recyclables here. This is where the actual coffee pod would end up first. We're surrounded by big bales of plastic and cardboard. Shredded paper covers everything like a confetti explosion. We walk up a blue steel staircase where conveyor belts funnel materials into a machine that separates them. And you see there's a series of shafts and they have something like metal plates that are um, on them. And they're spinning. When they spin, they make small materials fall through and large materials flow over the top. So if a coffee pod ends up here in the recycling, it will fall to the bottom with the other small materials, what Jewel describes as the tiny tinies. This is where your coffee pods are going to end up, along with, so what all do we see here? Lots of lids, plastic lids, oranges, the sweeties must be in season right now, flowers, bottle tops. It's a mix of glass, plastic, aluminum, and other small items. So your K-cups are probably in this pile. And then I think I see what maybe is a K-cup. I think I see some. Oh, good. Or maybe not. Maybe that's just a dressing thing. Jules says it's a question of size. A plastic K-cup and an espresso aluminum pod would end up here if you put it in your recycling bin. They could run an eddy current to attract the aluminum, but if there's still coffee grounds inside, it'll just weigh it down and won't attach. That means I'll end up at our next stop. So this is the trash. The next stop is the trash. We're looking down at an Olympic-sized swimming pool full of trash. And this is probably 7,000 tons of trash below us. So when we are looking out across this, what do you see a lot of? Uh, plastic bags. Lots of plastic bags for sure. I see some paper. I see um, what I would think of as rigid plastic, so like plastic buckets or garbage cans. Looking down at the amount of trash, Jewel points out that this is part of a bigger problem. So when you're asking about the Keurig cups, I don't see them. <laughs> I'm certain they're there, but they are so small. In terms of what we generate as a society or even as a city, Keurig agrees that not being able to easily recycle its pods is an issue, but that's something they're trying to fix. By 2020, Keurig says the K-Cups will be 100% recyclable. They're also taking a number of other steps, including investing in improving recycling infrastructure. 
but the coffee pods are still adding to the big pile of trash that will end up in a landfill. And that's a mountain of a problem we haven't successfully tackled yet. For Making Contact, I'm Laura Flynn. And that's it for this special joint edition of Making Contact and Green Grid Radio. For more information on Making Contact, go to radioproject.org. That's where you can subscribe to our podcast, so you won't miss a single episode. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. And for Green Grid Radio... You can visit our website, www.greengridradio.org, and you can also like us on Facebook, Green Grid Radio. I'm George Lavender. And I'm Mallory Smith. Thanks for listening.